Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to uh, John 6. We uh, have two miracles that happen in the narrative. One, Christ feeds 5,000 men at one city with a boy's few loaves and few fish. And uh, a miraculous thing, uh, it's approximated that 20,000 people were fed. He only numbers the men here, but if you included the wife and children, we don't know what number. We probably have 20,000 people being fed by Christ. It's recorded in all four Gospels. None of the writers forgot this miracle. Remarkable what he did. After he did this miracle, in the John narrative, they wanted to make him king. It's, you can become the king of the people if you can feed them. And so he fed them, and they were totally thrilled with the physical provision, and uh, they were just overwhelmed with this. We're going to make you king. And uh, uh, he escaped. He went to a mountain, and he prayed. Three other gospels say. John doesn't mention that. But the other three gospels said he went to a mountain to pray. And while he was there, another miracle takes place. He looks out on the Sea of Galilee, and I don't know how far away the sea was, but he could see his disciples who have rowed about three and a half miles going to the other side of the lake, and they're caught in a very frequent storm that the Sea of Galilee has. Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level, and the winds that come out of the east, out of the desert, often go and sweep over that lake, uh, removing the warm wind, bringing in cold, and it becomes tumultuous like that. Some of us uh, years ago went to Israel, and when we left, we were on the western side. We were going to the east. When we started out, it was as calm as could be, uh, nothing to it, smooth, kind of a boring water scene. There wasn't enough oxygen at that time. A lot of fish were dying. But as we made our way across, then you begin to see how a storm could come up easily and that it's a good-sized lake. And here we have these seasoned uh, fishermen three and a half miles out. Christ looks, he sees them, and he comes to the rescue. And he walks on the water. They think it's a ghost. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Your deliverance, you may mistake for a ghost. You never know. And uh, Christ comes. He uh, bids Peter to come and walk on the water. And he does that until he takes his eyes off of Jesus. Jesus finally gets on the boat. They land on the other side. After this, a bunch the next morning realize that the disciples have left. They've gone in one boat, and they run to the other side of the lake. Word must have gotten out the disciples are over there. And when they get there, they see Christ, and they say, how did you get there? He never answers, but we pick up the narrative, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, 
but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of God. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Now remember, these people just got fed yesterday. Do something for me lately. What are you going to do for me now? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, now notice that, you don't call a loaf of bread a he. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, and bread can't give its life. He's moved from physical bread to divine bread, which is a person, and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Moving from being a bread maker to being the bread. Moving from physical to eternal. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the sermon at the synagogue in Capernaum. Christ is preaching here. He's done the miracle yesterday. He did the miracle walking on the sea, but he picks up the bread incident because he's got a following based upon physical bread, and they still are clueless as to who he is. So he says, let me tell you something. I am the real bread that came from heaven. I did not come to start a bakery, and I'm not in the bread business. I am the bread from heaven. There's three things, two by way of introduction, really, and then we will look at what he means by this bread from heaven. The first thing that grabs me in the narrative, you can be following Jesus for the wrong reasons. Jesus knew how to get a crowd if you just keep taking care of their physical needs. And they were so moved by that that they said, uh, we're going to make you a king. But Christ says to himself, if I made a king before the cross, nobody will get saved because I'm king. I've got to be the slain lamb to save. See, he knows how to be king, and he'll be king in time enough. He's king eternal. He's just never been a king over the house of Israel. But we needed someone besides a king. 
We needed a lamb. We needed a substitute. We needed a payment. And I think it makes me search my heart. Uh, years uh, in being in church and preaching, sometimes I've seen people in church that some people pop up at the most, hey, glad to see you. Uh, what are you doing here? Or, I've seen emotion during services and thought, boy, the Spirit of God was really dealing with them. Later I found out their boyfriend broke up. Just because you got a tear in church doesn't mean God's dealing with you. I don't know why you came. Now, I'm not saying, now you're welcome, we're glad you're here. I'm not trying to run anybody off. But why? Why do people follow Christ? Why do they show up? Why do they come to the church? I've been with people a lot of times say, oh, what, kind, what kind of music do you have? Well, uh, I think it's pretty good. Well, it's got to be good if I'm going to come. Uh, and I think, well, well, where were you when we started this place? A man told me one time, I'd come if you had a good youth group. I said, well, there's only 20 of us, and we don't have any young people. Well, I'll come once you get it. Why do you follow Christ? And he said, you're only following me because you want me to do another miracle. You want me to do turn fish and bread into a meal to feed all of you. You're going to just hang out with me daily so that you can get a free lunch. And he said, I'm not in that business. And at the end of this sermon, by the way, many turned back and follow him no more. They did not like this sermon. They said, if you're not going to make our physical needs the priority of what you're about, we're out of here. And they walked away. And he asked Peter, are you going to leave me also? And Peter had the right answer. So I think it's a curious thing for myself. I ask myself why some men are in the ministry. They're not saved. They don't preach the Bible. They don't love Christ. They don't love his people. They just got a vocation. I, I just thank the Lord today that I happen to be a preacher, but the bonus is I'm also saved. I'd rather be saved than be a pastor. I'd rather know I'm going to heaven than to be a reverend. When I started this church, I said, don't anyone call me a reverend. I'm not to be revered. I want my God revered. I'm just a sinner saved by grace, just like you, just like you. And, and if you think I'm a mess now, you should have seen him when he got me. And so a good question that he could get a following but he wasn't impressed by a crowd. He, you know, he only wound up with 120 in the upper room after three and a half years of miracles, resurrections, feeding people, healing the blind, the deaf, casting out demons. You mean you only can get 120? Billy Graham can do better than you, Jesus. He can pack stadiums. You must not know how to lead people to God. I sometimes say that. I'm not a very good evangelist. I don't see many people get saved when I preach. I finally, the only thing that rescued me is the passage as we go along. It's really God's business to do the saving. I do the preaching. And he can even save you whether I know how to make an invitation or not and cast the demon out of the mic. Second thing that I think hits us on the way is Christ said something that they totally misunderstood. He said to them, uh, do not labor, verse 27, for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father has set his seal. 
Now they latch on to what he said, but they only latched on to one word, work. He said, what I want to give you will be a gift, but you've latched onto the idea of it being a work. And they're saying, tell us what you want us to do. If we can work for it, we'll work. We'll show you we can do it. And one of the great mistakes people have, they think there's something they've got to do to be saved. They do have to do something. And listen to what he says. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Putting your trust in Christ is the only work you'll ever be able to do that will save you. The work is trust in others. Trust his work. How are you going to get to heaven? Based on what your works are, are based upon Christ's work. A man was holding a tent revival in the Midwest, and uh, on the last day, they were breaking down the tent, and a man that had been attending the meetings uh, every night uh, came up to him as the tent was being broken down and uh, uh, was panicky. He said, wait, wait, uh, sir, you can't leave town. Uh, You've got to tell me what to do to be saved. And the evangelist had been preaching for weeks in that place. He said, there's nothing you can do. And the man became panicky. He said, tell me what I must do. He says, there's nothing you can do. He says, you've got to explain. He said, everything that had to be done for you to be saved was done. You only have to believe it. You've got to trust in it. You can't do anything to get to heaven. And that is so against the nature of man. We want to earn everything. Uh, Listen to these uh, examples. When Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, she said, what must I do to get this water? And Jesus said, it's too bad you don't realize I'm offering you a gift. And you want to take hold of a rope and see if you can get enough water out of this well. He said, I'm offering you a gift drink. I'm not offering you some more religious works. Listen to what he says. He comes to the young rich ruler, and the man says to him, good master, what must I do to get eternal life? And he says, you got to really believe me more than you believe in riches. But the emphasis was on, I want to do something. He said, the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? The doing is believing, trusting another. And the great question in our lives is, who can you trust for eternity? Who can you trust your life to that when you take your final breath and you leave this life and we have the funeral and we go back and have the potluck, where will you be? Where will you be? Whom have you trusted? It certainly must not be the works you've done. I, uh, I, I just, I think for my own funeral, I just wanted to say a sinner saved by grace. Uh, uh, you don't have to talk about how long I preached, how long I pastored, because all of that, uh, nothing in my hand do I cling to but this Christ. Christ is what saves, not what you do for him. Christ alone saves. We're saved by grace, unmerited favor, through faith, and this is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. And you know what? 
most people will give up heaven. If they can't earn it, they won't ever receive it as a gift. Why is it that the majority of people during Christ's ministry and on the face of the earth now do not ever put faith in Christ? It is a mystery. It baffles us. Well, he goes on now, and he's going to uh, tell them that he's the true bread from heaven. And, but before he gets there, uh, he says in verse 30 through 33, uh, I'm greater than the bread that was offered in the wilderness. For when you eat that bread, you die. Most of those people may have missed heaven. Hebrews said they missed the rest of God. They ate bread. They were sustained physically. But the majority of those two million Jews at March died in unbelief. They, they died not believing God. We don't even know if they'll be in heaven. But they had their physical needs met for 40 years. And so they're throwing up to Jesus. Hey, do some more miracles. Rabbinic tradition said when Messiah comes, he will do, give us bread from heaven just like Moses did. And so they're putting that messianic expectation. Where's the bread? Moses fed us for 40 years. Uh, Two million of us. You only did it one day. 5,000 of us. Come on. Step up if you're Messiah. He said, wait a minute. Number one, Moses didn't provide the bread. Number two, those who ate it died and perished. That bread rotted within 24 hours. I'm talking about a different kind of bread. I'm talking about wonder loaf out of the third heaven. I'm it. I'm talking about wonder bread. I won't rot, and I won't meet your needs for a day or a week, but for all eternity. And so then they said, wow, if we can get some of this wonder loaf, where is it? He said, it's standing in front of you. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. In the Greek it says, whoever is coming to me shall never hunger. Matter of fact, it's a double negative in Greek, ume. Shall absolutely never hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, does this mean physical food? Absolutely not. You, you can't be a Christian and not realize Christians eat all the time. We call it food and fellowship. I was at David's group yesterday. The seniors are the best-fed group in this church. Go, go, go over to the senior occasions. They pig out. I mean, that's the, that's the ministry. Get away from the youth department. They're lean. Over here is where the food is. Place. Church folks like potluck. They like to eat. He wasn't talking about that. But are you aware that every one of us live with a Grand Canyon abyss in our hearts, that we hunger for meaning, purpose, mission, fulfillment. It's amazing how many things we try to fill the vacuum and they just don't work. You know, when you're young, you think, man, if I had a hot car, maybe a Corvette, maybe a Mustang, if I can get that, no, what I really need is a slick chick. If I had that chick on my arms, I would be fulfilled. And about two days in the wedding, 
after the marriage, you say, did I marry the right person? I, I, I wonder if there's a better one out there that could do more for me. And you're saying, I've had Christians say, I wonder if it's the will of God. Well, it is now. <laughs> it is now, honey. Don't be praying. I wonder if he, he's got another blessing. The blessing's right there. Because I'm not sure. But wait, you said if you just had her, you'd be fulfilled. There's nothing in this life that will ever fulfill the deepest recesses of your heart. And because C.S. Lewis said it this way, if you feel you've got desires and uh, longings for things that this world has never been able to fulfill, he said, it might be a clue to you that you were made for another world. See, God made us, he wouldn't put hunger in you if there wasn't something such as food. He wouldn't put thirst built into us if there wasn't something called water, drink. Whatever the longing, relationship, I, I want a companion, I, I want children. Uh, you want these various, so that the desire gives you a hint that there's something to fill it. But guess what being a human being is? It's living with unmet desires until you come to a Savior who says, I will eliminate your hunger for deep meaning, and I'll eliminate the thirst in the depth of your soul. See, it was the rich man in hell that was still thirsty. And when Jesus was on the cross, he represented the cosmic thirst of a fallen race. When he said, I'm thirsty. I'm shut off from God. I'm on this cross and I'm dying. And I want to speak the word of hell and the word of humanity. I'm thirsting for something right now that I can't have. And that's fellowship with God. And Jesus is saying, people, I just fed you 24 hours ago and you're hungry again. Let me introduce you to a bread that quenches thirst and hunger for the rest of your life and into eternity. I am the bread that gives you eternal life, and I guarantee you, you'll never hunger or thirst again. Now, I understand that to be saying, I'm going to put a river in you, and I'm going to be what you feed upon from now on, so that it's not we don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. He said that too. But I've been introduced to a storehouse of plenty in Christ that all eternity cannot diminish the source. I've been given a river of life in my being that my thirst is like a little pebble and there is Niagara Falls full of water. I'm more than you will ever need. And there will not be one crevice of your heart or being or the abyss of your loneliness that when Christ comes in, he fills the soul hunger and the soul thirst. And this is disturbing to me when someone says, I know Jesus and I'm still discontented, I'm still dissatisfied, and I'm still miserable. And I'm asking, when did you drink of the water? When did you taste of this bread that quenches your inner man hunger? You may still want to be married. You may still want some things, but he's the drink that satisfies. It, 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 there is a satis 
satisfaction in him. I had a man that just sang uh, at our wedding, Robert Watson. And one of the favorite songs I used to have Robert sing for me was, there are no disappointments in Jesus. He's everything he said he would be. There are no disappointments in Jesus. He's everything he said he would be. Now, come to me, crowd. I hear your stomachs growling. I hear your kids crying because you want another quick lunch. But I'm about more than physical food. I'm about that which can quench the deepest hunger in your heart. He goes on. I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. You've seen me in operation. You've seen my miracles. You were the crowd that I fed. And now you're coming here and saying, we want another miracle. Do something like Moses did. He said, you've seen me in operation and you still don't believe. You've got me on test and trial. The problem is with you. How much would it take to get you to believe in me? Nobody will be in hell that hasn't had enough evidence presented to them. But we are stubborn sinners and we want to keep snapping to God. You've got to show me some more. Do some more. Come on. Go. Perform for me. I want a miracle. I want a sign. I want some more bread. Matter of fact, if you don't do it, I'm not going to believe in you. He said, you've already seen what I've done and you don't believe. I'm not dancing for you. I'm not a God that's made to satisfy your wondering desire. I'm a God that owes you no miracles. And you don't believe me after I've done them. Do you ever bargain? God, if you do this, I'll serve you. God, if you do this, I'll... You know what? What would you do if you heard him say, all right, see you later? It's a foolish thing to bargain with the offer of eternal life. You better take it when he is knocking at the door of your heart. Now listen to what he says. You guys have seen what I've done and won't come. Here's the mystery. Who, who finally gets it? Why did you get it? Anybody in your family that doesn't know the Lord? Why you? You were the smartest. You were the nicest. Let's leave that alone. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me, I can't hear you, will come to me. Who comes? All that the Father gives to the Son. This is what we call sovereign election. God has a people that he's going to reward his Son with. I love the saying of the Moravians in 1732 uh, when they went out from Germany as missionaries. Their motto was, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. We're going to go out and evangelize in the West Indies where they died. Because we believe the lamb died for people there that are dying in the sugar plantations. And we're going to leave Germany. And we're going to come and evangelize them. And their model, they sang it on the dock. May the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. And here the father has told the son, if you'll go to the cross, I'll give you a people. If you become a king, I'm not saving anybody because you're the king but will you go to the cross? And he's on his way to the cross. 
And it says, Jesus says, I'm not disillusioned. The ones that will come to me, the Father has given. I am astounded at that verse. Does that mean the Father gave me to the Son? Sure sounds like it. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Well, who do we know who the Father has given? They're the ones that come. I'm giving them. What will they do? They will come to you. Hmm. That's simple, isn't it? Have you ever had people say, I don't know if I'm elect or not? Well, I don't either. I wish God would have painted a yellow stripe down the back of everybody that's elect. And that'd be the only ones I'd evangelize. The rest of you aren't going to be saved anyway. You, you're going to reject it. Woo! I say, yellow stripe. Come here, honey. Let me tell you about Christ. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. You don't know who the elect are. I don't know, except for one clue. Have you come to Jesus? Have you believed in Jesus? If you have believed in Jesus, obviously God chose to give you as a gift to his son. And he said, they'll come. And then he says something here. Look at the verse and yell back at me. I don't want you to sleep out there. This is July, but you could be awake in July. Watch this verse. And whoever comes to me, I will, what, what does it say? Never drive away, cast away. But you know how I took that verse for years? I understood it. Whoever comes to me, I won't shut out. You know, I come to the door. He says, you can't get in. He's not saying that. Let me give you the word. It's a little word, ek, balo, easy. Not, ek is our word exit, out of, Greek preposition, out of. Balo, simple, to throw. Jesus used it when he said, uh, pray the Lord for us labors into the harvest. The word for thrust is cast him out into the harvest. Ek, balo, throw him out into it. Pray the Lord thrust labors. So this means to take by force and throw you out. Now listen to what he says. If the Father has given you to the Son and you have come to the Son, in Greek he does a double negative. It's wrong in English. The double negative is ou me. Ou is no and me is no. But in Greek they'll do a double negative for emphasis. They shall absolutely no, never be thrust out once they're in. Do you see it? When you cast them out, he's not saying, I won't shut you out. No, once you get in, ain't nobody in going to throw you out. Now, we've made salvation so humanly dependent. I got, I got saved. I came. Hey, what did God have to do with it? He gave you, in verse 44, you won't come unless he draws you. You didn't just save yourself. And when you did come by grace and through faith, once you got in, I was saved for um, six, uh, at least 12 years before I thought I wouldn't be cast out. And if anybody I'd want to cast out, it'd be Peter, big coward. I mean, how would you want someone to be one of the apostles of your church and the, his claim to fame is, I denied him three times, and I said I wouldn't. And right when he was on trial, I said, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. And when he looked at Jesus, Jesus could say, see you, Peter, you're out. You remember what he said in Luke 22? Peter, 
The enemy is going to sift you like wheat, and you're going to deny me and do things you never thought you can do, but I'm praying for you, and when you're converted, go strengthen the brothers. He didn't get cast out. You know, a lot of cultures, if the girl gets pregnant before she's married, she's pregnant out of wedlock, Guess what the father does? Guess what the village does? You're banned from our house. You're banned from our village. You can't be pregnant in this country and in this village and ever get back in. And here he says, if you come to me, I'll let you in. And once you're in, there'll be no hand that will ever cast you out. And he said it in John 10, 29. Oh, look, you don't believe me? Listen. Look at John. You were just messing with me right then. Come look at it here. John 10, 29. Are you there? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Look at John 17. John 17, his high priestly prayer. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. You gave him, look at chapter 18, verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Can you imagine Christ? Uh, I can see the final roll call. And, and God the Father says to the Son, I gave you a million souls. What have you done with them? Well, we lost 50,000 on the way. We lost, you know, there's wolves out there, Father. There's temptations. Uh, the devil's strong. Lust is strong. Temptation is strong. And, and I, I wanted to get them here, but they were picked off at the ravine. The wolf ate up the best lambs. Some drowned in the river. Some fell over cliffs. Wadis all over the Judean wilderness. I, I, I did my best, but I lost a few on the way. He said, when I get there, I could tell the Father, I've lost nothing of what you gave me. I've lost nothing of what you gave me. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, Bless your heart, honey. If you could get lost after getting saved, all of us would have missed it because we're all, we, we stay in trouble all the time. Prone to wonder. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart. Seal it for your courts above. Oh, you know, when I read the Peter narrative of his denial, I don't, Christ isn't the model of me. Peter is. Peter is my picture. You'll cave in after pressure. You came in and I can't imagine, I can't imagine what the early children of God went through in the book of Acts. I think, I, I thought I was doing good to pray over my food at Richmond High Cafeteria because I didn't want the cool cats see me praying. Well, who cares if those hooligans would care if I pray or not? How could I elevate a bunch of hoods to the place that I state myself where I don't want them seeing me praying? I got over it. I started packing a New Testament in the ninth grade. And I, I wore it. Every teacher let me read a chapter before they called on me in the class. I read a chapter before. I, so I read seven chapters a day at school from the ninth grade on because I didn't have to see the dean anymore. 
I, I wasn't in the dean's office anymore. So I carried that little New Testament. I had a guy at Richmond High pushing on me, wanting to fight me. I said, I'm not afraid of you. I, I just quit fighting. Got saved. He didn't know what that was. Started pushing me and hit that and knocked my New Testament out of my pocket. And he said, oh, what's this? And started making fun of me. And I finally picked it up. I said, since you're so bad and so tough, I want you to carry this the rest of the day. Not me. I said, no, you're a coward. You don't know him. But I gladly bear his name. I'll gladly keep it. I'm not carrying a pack of lucky strikes, honey. I'm carrying the New Testament, the word of God. But how cowardly we can be. Just think, if it was possible to lose it, don't you think we would have all lost it? But I didn't find him. He found me. I didn't tell him I could keep him. He said he could keep me. I wasn't given to him on my own. The father gave me to the son. And he said, son, I can trust you to keep him. Only you can get him to the city. And that's who we're resting in. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock. I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Man, I wish you'd get happy. You knew what I was saying? You could at least get happy. God can keep you forever, you rascal. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should only lose a few. Oh, wait. Oh, good. Now that's what you spoke. You look at that text and correct me. That I should lose None of all that he has given me. But I'll even raise it up on the last day. Isn't that, you come to me, I'll quench your hunger, I'll quench your thirst, I won't ever throw you out, and by the way, I'll take care of the future. I'm going to resurrect your body. That's what he's saying. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have temporary life. Oh, oh. Part, eternal, eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. I give you Jesus, friend. I give you Jesus. I have nothing else. I'm not a miracle worker. I don't know how to do miracles. You'll have to watch Benny. I can't do them. <laughs> I can make you fall over, but the miracle is if you can get up and walk in the Spirit. I have more problem walking in the Spirit than falling over. He said you'll walk in the Spirit. He didn't say you'll faint in the Spirit. Can you walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh? I'm going to tell you, that's the kind of thing I want the Spirit to do. But have you ever come to Jesus? What, how long will it, how much more time do you need? How much more time? I, this may be hard on you. You can never be saved on your terms. You've got to come when you hear his voice, when he calls you, when he says, I'm giving you to my son. I'm giving you to my son. Do you want to come? Do you want to follow? Do you think he's enough? to quench the hunger of your heart. He said he is. And there's millions that will say he's, he's everything he said he would be. I am the bread from heaven. We'll look next week and try to find out what he means when he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no, you have no part of me. I've had people leave here before because they thought we were cannibalistic when we took communion. Come back, we'll find out what he meant there, what he meant. And if you follow Christ, when we take communion tonight, 
We take communion for three reasons. We share that we are sharing in his life. We are connected with the head of the church. We're members of his body. Two, some mysterious way tonight, whether I teach or not, Christ is going to be proclaimed when we just take communion and do it reverently before him. We will proclaim Christ. And this you may not understand yet. It's mysterious. It seems mystical. But there is a foretaste in communion of actually saying, I'm feasting on the bread of heaven. Not the sacrament, but it's celebrating in symbol what I really have begun to partake of spiritually. I'm a feeder on Christ. I'm a nourished man on Christ. And the bread and the cup are just weak symbols of a deeper truth. I feed on Christ. He's my sustenance. He's my eternal life. He is the bread that will satisfy forever. And when I break the bread tonight, I will celebrate. I got my first taste when I was a 14-year-old boy. And I want to tell you, he gets better, sweeter, and more fulfilling every day I know him. He gets sweeter. Let us pray. Father, I pray for those who have never come. I don't know why. I think I've preached the gospel here a thousand times. That's just in a decade. I've presented the gospel every way I know how from this pulpit. And some have never come. I just take that you're not going to give them to the Son. But they're still alive. And while they're alive, and while they still hear, you're patiently calling again, patiently inviting them. Come to me that you might have life. Come to me. Don't pursue the physical. Don't pursue that which is perishable and will pass. Come to me, the bread from heaven that has given his life to give you life. I ask, Father, do your work. You can draw. You can tell the Spirit how to convict and how to give men and women the gift of life that they might take Christ as their Savior that they may escape the wrath of God by fleeing to the Lamb of God. Please save. If there's any that are just hanging out in church because they're treated well, they like the music maybe, the people, the kindness of this congregation, those are wonderful things. But I pray they won't miss the real thing. Let them come to Christ. Let them be saved. Bring us back tonight with a zeal to serve you. Restore the delight in our hearts in serving you so that we don't just come out of duty, but that we come out of delight, that we delight to know this God, that we delight to serve him, we delight to sing to him, we delight to take those weak elements, a little bit of matzah, a little bit of juice, what weak, weak, weak symbols of the greater feast of Christ. Oh, I pray, 
saved, make this pulpit on fire about the gospel, more excited about your work than our works. We just pray that we will serve you out of joy, but not out of a merit system. We're not trying to earn your favor. We've been given grace, and we thank you forever. We're going to sing of your amazing grace that saved sinners like us. Bless your name. Let's stand and sing it.